Hello, and welcome to Looks Unfamiliar, the show that remembers that the 1985 Cindy television studio came with backdrops for at least four programmes. I hope one was this week next week. I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today to talk about some of the things that she remembers, that nobody ever seems to, is comedy writer and author Gabby Hutchinson Crouch. Gabby, what you up to work? We find it. Oh, I'm up to. I'm still clinging on to the bird site. If you are also still clinging on to the bird site, which is a bird site, thank you, Elon Musk. I'm at Scribblet, but I'm also on Mastodon at Scribblet as well. And at some point, I may go onto one of the other lifeboats and will also be Scribblet if I possibly can be. I'm also. I've written. Oh, I've written a bunch of books now. How many have I written? Six and a half. So I've got one trilogy. <laughs> I've got one trilogy out that is for ages eight and up which is called the Darkwood Trilogy which is a comedy fantasy adventure which is available as ebook paperback or now audiobook and I've also got another trilogy called the Rooks Trilogy actually I'd say it's for grown-ups but loads of kids who read Darkwood have come to me and said I really like the Rooks as well so the Rooks books are Wish You Weren't Here Out of Order and the new book coming out in September which will be the last of the trilogy called Home Sweet Hell those are also available as ebook or paperback and they are starting to roll those out as audiobooks as well so those are available from wherever you buy your books and I also have a little podcast about formative cartoon crushes called Curiously Drawn which is available wherever you cast your pod. Okay well your first choice isn't set in any kind of fantasy land at all in fact it's quite the opposite and there are no cartoon crushes in it and I can't think of a better link than that so (laughs) let's just hear a bit of it. No, that wasn't the Kinks, that wasn't the Beatles, that wasn't Sid Floyd. Gabby, who's singing about Cricklewood? That's the goodies. And I put it to you that it is a fantasy land because the goodies live in like a heightened version of Britain where they are like heightened and cartoonish versions of themselves. And also I put it to you that Graham Garden kind of was a cartoonish crush because he's a cartoon of himself and he was hot trot in the 70s. So yeah, this is the goodies singing like it's a Kinks style parody as far as I can tell all about Cricklewood and it is genuinely a really beautiful and haunting song (laughs) especially the bit where they get Graham to do this strange haunted sounding sort of tour a guided audio tour of the wonders of Cricklewood in which he does the click of the tape rewinding (laughs) this has been a recording It's interesting. As you say, it is sort of a real kind of mid-60s. Primarily Mm. the kinks, a lot of other things thrown in there. It does mention Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields. Mentions on Broadway as well, which Mm. isn't quite as wistful a location or scenario, really, because the guy is flat broken begging on Broadway. He's not quite like the people of Cricklewood in this. It's from the new Goodies LP from 1975. And I do wonder if it has a slightly older vintage, because there is, as I may come back to, 
this whole history of Bill trying to be a pop star in the 60s with all these kind of psych pop singles and some of which turned up in the early episodes of The Goodies and apparently mm. now only exist in those episodes with laughter all over them as you know, Graham falls over and they yeah, yeah. post box or whatever. But I wonder if he had written it in the 60s. There's no trace of any kind of commercial release or performance on TV or radio as far as I can tell. But I like to think that somewhere, probably on like twice a fortnight... There's a long lost performance of it with him dressed up in, you know, Paisley <laughs> shirt, standing yeah. outside the UFO club or something. But yeah. yeah, it really does nail the mid 60s in the mid 70s. They do unfortunately have a tendency to satirise things like about a decade after they came out. Because <laughs> <laughs> they, they did this wonderful satire of like disco and Saturday Night Fever and Greece all together, but they did it in like the very end of the 70s where yes. it's like punk was coming in. Like, and they'd already done a punk one as well. They did. And that was a bit late as well. Like, these are really amazing, but they are like four years late. I suppose it doesn't matter when you're watching them in the 2020s. Really, the only bits that are, well, there are bits that have massively aged. Aged like fine milk in the goodies. But those are mostly when they have women in bikinis or a lot of blackface. Yes, that's the difficult thing about... I find it with Monty Python and the Beatles to an extent as well, is that 99% of the time they were on the right side. They were behind progressive ideals. It's just that tiny amount where they you know, transgress that, sticks out all the more. Yeah. It's like famously, there are instances of the Beatles, you know, preaching racial tolerance, saying why not be nice to these people, in which they do sort of, you know, the accent with the head moving from side to side. Yeah. Even though it's only in audio, you can hear the head You can hear it, yeah. So it's, like you say, it's mainly the stuff with Bill chasing women and speeded up motion down the street. You should just say, actually, people might not know, actually, the goodies were a comedy troupe with their own sort of, it's not quite clear to me really whether it's a sketch show or a sitcom it's sort of both at the same time but they also had this parallel pop career and in 1975 they were the biggest thing on the planet there's a book that came out with the complete goodies dvd where it lists what they were doing at any given point in 1975 it looks like they didn't get a moment to rest in it <laughs> they're just doing adverts and books and well records all over the place they're in the have a cracking christmas advert which is wonderful if you search up have a cracking christmas at woolworths it is the most christmas thing. It's one of these Christmas adverts where it wasn't about the vibe like it is these days. It was just about here are the products we've got and here's how much they cost. But it also had Bill and Tim dressed up as clowns. It had ballerinas and nutcracker dolls and all this sort of weird stuff going on. Yeah, it's got Tim and Bill just sort of, they're sort of jumping around and then occasionally they're advertising pen sets. <laughs> <laughs> It's really, really funny. But yeah, they were they they were before my time, and I cannot remember. I think it was probably through my husband that I sort of got into them in probably the early noughties. I knew them like I mostly knew them from Banana Man. I think that's the thing that I watched that had them in it. And also, Bill did quite a few like kids TV things, like there was the Bubblegum Brigade yes, that he did. Yeah. So I knew him from the Bubblegum Brigade and from Facts. Oh. Fox, yes. It had our beloved local celebrity, Billy Butler, as one of the hosts. Yes. 
I knew Graham and Tim from I'm Sorry I Haven't a Clue, which I loved. I loved I'm Sorry I Haven't a Clue when I was a teenager. I was that kind of dorky teenager. And obviously I knew them all from Banana Man, but I hadn't actually seen The Goodies, The Goodies until I think like a DVD or a video had come out. It had like King Kong and Scatty Safari, which is Scatty Safari is so funny. And it's such a shame that they made it about a paedophile. Yes, yes. <laughs> they didn't know that at the time. They we didn't know say. that at the time. No, so Scatty Safari is an amazingly good episode. If you watch it through the lens of they are ripping this guy, (laughs) they are really making fun of this guy. But it's about Rolf Harris. It's basically they create a zoo. They have a celebrity zoo because in every episode they've got a new job. In this episode, their job is celebrity zoo. And in the celebrity zoo, like Rolf Harris is the main attraction. They have this really amazing sequence where they go to Australia and they catch a Rolf Harris in the wild, which has got one of my favourite physical jokes in it ever which is they've got like a stun dart to put into sleep as he's like running and like bashing the side of their truck so graham sort of loads the dart into the gun and then he gets out of the jeep runs alongside him cleans the side of his arm where the needle's gonna go in then runs and gets back in the jeep and then shoots him in the bum and it is just one of my favorite physical jokes they basically they have a breeding pair they get a little person to play baby rolf in like this really really funny sequence where they're basically they're aping like the panda breeding programs where like kids would come and watch the baby pandas and get very excited so they get a little person to like dress up as rolf and cause mayhem as a baby rolf and then the rolfs escape and then there's a plague of Rolf Harris's and they do a really funny version of the Pied Piper at the end like it's so funny but yeah watch it if you haven't watched it but be aware it is all mildly ribbing somebody who was outed later as, as a massive predatory pedophile that's also got the amazing gag with Tony Blackburn in it where Tony Blackburn is their first star exhibit and he's pining for the wild so they say him free <laughs> and they get the real Tony Blackburn to run along a field in slow motion to the tune of Black Beauty as they're crying and waving him goodbye <laughs> And then he gets shot by a poacher. There's so much packed into it. It's got the speed of a sketch show. In fact, it's got better speed than a sketch show because their contemporaries were Monty Python. In fact, Tim was very nearly a Python because he was part of that group at university. And he was in the original Four Yorkshireman sketch. He co-wrote it. He co-wrote the Four Yorkshireman. So they are contemporaries of Monty Python, but they're so much faster and slicker than Monty Python. Monty Python will take like 10 minutes to do a sketch that's really got one or two jokes in it. The goodies in 10 minutes will not just get through like two dozen jokes they will get through like a massive plot a massive plot line that is really cartoonish so in terms of whether it's a sketch show or a sitcom it is a sitcom but with like the speeds and the joke intensity of something that we'd like have more these days but it's also really cartoonish it's got that sort of cartoonish joke intensity to it as well it's like the Beano that you can watch (laughs) yeah or like the monkeys actually I think is a yeah because you get you know songs with speeded up film mm-hmm. sets at the minute so yeah that's very close but I wonder if you know we were saying that they tended to go for really sort of good big targets but a couple of years mm. later if that getting it right if you know hitting all those notes getting so much in making it just relatable to everyone was kind of I mean because they did Watership Down I think in the early 80s you know which mm. was a, a little bit after Bright Eyes was in the charts we say yeah. but that's one of the very best ones but it reminds me of 
of. My favourite series of it is the very first series mm. because they didn't really know what they were doing. It was a bit yeah. sort of the last gasp of the satire boom. It was more aimed at maybe a proggy audience. And there's one in that, again, three years after all the pirate radio stations were closed down. <laughs> radio goodies. Yeah, they started That's a pirate radio station, which becomes a pirate post office. And eventually they plan to tow the whole of Britain outside the three mile hit. Yeah. If you've watched that, you'll know why. That's one of my favourite episodes. (laughs) (laughs) Graham goes evil in like a really weirdly sexy way. (laughs) He's like going around in jumpers, shouting at people. And I'm like, oh, hello. (laughs) Sorry, that's just my thirst. And they had, I mean, this album with this on was absolutely massive at the time. And it's weird mm. that it's not actually been reissued in its original form anywhere ever, I don't think. But there was the whole thing about they had been around for almost a decade in various permutations before the goodies started. Mm. And while the other two had a lot of experience on late night satire shows and that sort of thing, and they had their own show, Broaden Your Mind, which I think yeah. Bill was on sometimes, but not always on. Bill had been trying to be a pop star for almost the whole of the 60s. And again, he's one of those people where you can tell more about the 60s by looking at what he did, because, you know, all his records, well, nearly all of them were sort of parody things. And, you know, you look at them and you say, well, that's the Merseybeat one, that's the Scar one. He did all that, but his very... I'm not sure if it's the first one or the second one. I can't remember off the top of my head, but he did one called, have you ever heard Nothing Better to Do? It's a straight record. It's a protest song against the mods and rockers bank holiday fights. Genuinely, (laughs) it's Bill Oddie telling him to stay at home and not go smashing up seaside towns. And he claims the BBC banned it because they thought mods and rockers might sing at each other while, you know, charging on the beachfront. But if you ever heard it, you'll know that they would have had to learn all the words and all the harmonies. So, you know, a bit useless for launching an assault. I think the BBC just didn't play it because yeah. it was weird. But he did all kinds of things like, he did an album called Distinctly Oddy, which is really, really good. Have you ever heard On Oakland More Bat Art? No. Right. Well, I found that in a charity shop when I was about 14, because I was I had sort of trace memories of how much I loved the goodies when I was extremely young. And it was quite a big thing for me and sort of my friends around there was, do you remember the goodies? That was really weird. I took it home expecting it be, you know, sort of basically just Bill singing with a brass band yeah when i played it i thought this is joe cocker with a little help from my friends it's like a mispressed record but it's him doing an uncle more batat in the style of joe cocker doing with a little <laughs> help from my friends and it is still all this time later it is still incredibly funny the b-side is harry krishna which is <laughs> the harry krishna anthem but about harry seacom harry corpus oh, sure. <laughs> Obviously, he then, in the 70s, you know, he goes into this whole, as was recently mentioned on here by Bob Fisher, he comes resolutely down on the one in his funk phase. But the music is actually, beneath all the stuff about Funky Gibbons and the Cricklewood Shakedown, which is another bizarre (laughs) one, but the music is absolutely, you know, he was listening to Sly Stone, Roland Kirk, people like that. And musically, it's absolutely bang on. You can see why they weren't just regarded as novelty hits. They were sort of weirdly a kind kind of funky glam rock band in their own right it's just they look a little bit out of place on top of the pops in their their satin waistcoats with nothing underneath (laughs) they did i'm gonna give a shout out to the in-betweenies as well which is another one that i really really love because it's a song that seems like it's for children but it is very specifically about being 30 years old and it's lovely and it does capture that what am i about being in your late 20s early 30s it's like i'm not i don't feel middle-aged but i'm not young anymore am i it's just 
just about that. It's about being, you're not a teeny bopper anymore, but you're also kind of too young to be, to feel like, oh, it's time to get a mortgage and just talk about interest rates. You know, <laughs> I mean, that's kind of how I've felt like, since 25 and now I'm 43 and I feel exactly the same. But it is a sort of weird little song about the quarter life crisis that they wrote and performed primarily for children. <laughs> wistful message thing is also there in Cricklewood because mm. as you say you know it's that very odd thing about nothing ever happens there no one's going anywhere yeah and also the bit where I've always loved the fact that it says people looking for the sun waiting yeah. till the day is done and they go home to Cricklewood now I remember thinking but they're already in Cricklewood so how are they going home to Cricklewood and I think that makes it work even more it's the yeah. mentality of their lives that they don't realize they're already home when they are yeah the irony is that these days Crickle was probably like you can't get a house for less than two million quid <laughs> like oh yeah there's really run down boring areas like now yeah only millionaires can live there now the other weird thing about it is it's a rare lead vocal from Tim Brooke Taylor because normally yeah. one of the things I love about their records is the shoehorning in of the other two well Bill yes. Handel's lead vocals are always given something funny to do Silly or say do. I mean one of my favourites is on this album Working the Line which I think is from the <gasps> fun fight at the OK Tea Rooms episode it is it's it... Bill singing but they get yeah, my pants fell down. down. Yeah, you got Tim doing that really sort of camp cowboy voice, but Graham I got terribly hot. Really scary kind of. Darn my fist. Darn my fist. It's so that's convincing, but it's actually quite <laughs> alarming. Yeah, that's another one of my favourites, and that's one that my son really likes. I mean, one of the reasons that I chose this record is my son A really loves the goodies, and B he really really likes the songs. And working the line is like one of his favourites because it's one of those silly songs where if you're singing it together in the car like the kids could go my pants fell down <laughs> now darn for this and it is from such a funny it's from again the bum fight at the OKT rooms is incredibly funny I think that's probably one of the ones that's aged the best because I can't think of anything in it that's racist or misogynistic but it's just Graham going mad again and sort of a wild west allegory and it ending up with well you've got a really really funny montage where they're mining to work in nine and then you've got a really really funny gambling at the saloon which turns into a shootout sequence which is amazing they did their own stunts especially graham who like loved to throw himself around in his last bit he gets shot and killed and has to sort of bodily throw himself on the ground so he put loads of padding on it. but then when it came to the actual thing he does this amazing mid-air flip he is like a very good physical comedian so he sort of jumps up into the air flips 180 degrees and then lands on his face <laughs> which he had not padded at all so he's got all this wonderful padding all along his back and now he just landed on his face and it is actually the goodies is responsible for i think a number of jokes that people don't really know the origin of and probably think mm. they made up themselves the biggest one being don't cry for me margentina yes the, the, the evita episode they do yeah. genuinely i remember when i was a kid you don't see it coming even though yeah. there were secretaries with signs saying margentina, margentina. in front of them <laughs> Okay, well, for your next choice, we're jumping forward about 20 years, but we're not moving that far either, because we're still on BBC Two, and more whimsical comedy relatively late at night.
okay theme music there that might sound vaguely familiar but from another channel and slightly later in the decade gabby what was that the theme from these are harry hill's fruit fantasies which are in the mid to late 90s i think harry hill was sort of he was just sort of coming out of his radio 4 show he was like starting to pick up a bit of an audience and harry hill being harry hill decided to make a series of six silent black and white movies <laughs> which are brilliant and i started thinking about this when we were chatting about the goody songs because you mentioned bill's song about the mods and rockers and one of the harry hills fruit fancies descends into a fight between the mods and rockers on the beach that's part of the punch and judy one isn't it so one of his films is about a punch and judy show that descends into mods versus rockers beating the shit out of each other on the beach in sort of punch and judy style there's one called Nun Rabbi Nun which is about a rabbi <laughs> who falls in love with a nun which is really sweet that's my favourite one it's just this little they're only about 10 minutes long I think yet they're silent they're black and white can you find them I think I found one on YouTube once but they're worth looking up because they're just so fucking weird and also I mean it's Harry Hill he is so funny but it is really interesting to watch him having done a radio show where he could only rely on audio he goes straight to making sure films where he can only rely on silent visual jokes and it's really interesting to watch him sort of just really really piling these sort of very cartoonish again cartoonishness end of the pier type I mean literally end of the pier type comedy for the Punch and Judy one the Nun Rabbi Nun film is a sort of a rom-com that ends in like loads of people who usually have big fallings out like loving each other I think they have like it's lots of like really really 90s like geopolitically (laughs) (laughs) geopolitical enemies (laughs) hugging each other at the end when this nun and this rabbi have fallen in love but the only ones I can really remember are the Punch and Judy one and Nun Rabbi Nun but there were four others part of the reason that I chose this is it's one of the things that I bonded with my now husband over when we went to university because at the time we were just friends and we were just like chatting about like things that we thought were funny as you do when you go to university and you sort of meet up with a new social group he was one of the few people who were like yeah Harry Hill yeah he's really funny Harry Hill and I had the video of his Brute Fancies which my husband hadn't seen so we sat in we were in both of our we moved from my room on campus to his room on campus I think and just watched them and got incredibly drunk just watch these and that was one of the that was one of our first sort of times together i think we were dating at that point but yeah we just got really really drunk and bonded over harry hill and that's been something that we've loved having together ever since yeah as you say they did come out on vhs and they haven't resurfaced since it's really weird because those short films were a kind of integral part of his act around them because if you ever saw him live in the 90s he always had a short black white film before he came on like i think some of them were on the videos like the boy with the big face certainly is <laughs> 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 there was a lot of that actually at the time i miss 90s surrealism well, there was because i was thinking about how this worked it's so weird that this disappeared given that a harry hill became bigger than almost any of his contemporaries yeah he's massive he's like he's doing and he was sort of at the time and he still is you know he's able to d- just do itv1 primetime because he's that kind of he's bringing surre- that, that he brings surrealism to itv1 primetime is wonderful but this is now so forgotten that you actually have to scroll down the first page of google 
Google results to find the first page that's actually devoted to it. Mm. All the higher results are about, you know, TV burp or whatever. Yeah. The other odd thing is it went out in the similar slot to, I mean, they put a lot of things on in sort of odd comedy slots on BBC Two in those days, like the staggering stories of Ferdinand de Bargos and Les Lives, which nobody remembers. It's just, you know, Les from Vic Reeves' Big Night Out. Yes. Had a series of short right. adventures. It wasn't great, should we right. say. Right, no, yeah. But, you know, credit to him for having a go. But this was sort of mm. the same slot as, like, the day-to-day mini-news. Yeah. And I think, after Chris Morris and Steve Coogan, the third thing people will say about the day-to-day is, oh, yeah, they show those short extra bits of it. Mm-hmm. And you think this would be remembered a similar way, but it has. But maybe that's because he hadn't quite taken off then, because he was around for a long time before he became huge. Yeah. Because, as you say, he had Harry Hill's Fruit Corner was on Radio 4 for about four years. And, unfortunately, yeah. including somebody you've already mentioned, there are a lot of gentlemen guesting in that. Yeah, there's a lot of people who... Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And he also did when Harry met Ali with Alistair McGowan on Radio 4. Again, nobody remembers that. But yeah, he was... I remember first being aware of him when... I think it was a Christmas enemy in 1991 where they challenged people to come up with their fancy Christmas Day TV schedule. (laughs) And, you know, there were all sort of members of Midway Steel or whatever saying, ah, we should put Derek Jarman's Blue on. (laughs) Actually, maybe Blue hadn't come out by... You know, that kind of thing, though. But Harry Hill listed all these imaginary programmes where the titles <laughs> were puns on Baker that were presented by either Cheryl Baker or Tom Baker and the last programme was Royal Buckaroo where the Queen played Buckaroo in front of a celebrity audience brackets Tom and Cheryl Baker and I thought this guy's interesting and it was weirdly parallel with I remember Al Murray saying on something once that the reason he got talking to Harry Hill was they were in the writers meeting for Weekending the Radio yeah. 4 satire show mm-hmm. and it was the week there was the controversy about British Rail cancelled trains because the leaves on the line and yeah. he said what about a sketch where instead of that a big conker rolls in front of the tunnel <laughs> on the trains <laughs> And, you know, the producers looked at him like he was mad. And Al thought, no, this guy's a genius. Yeah. I didn't realise that. I, I knew that Al Murray started off on weekends. I didn't know that Harry Hill did as well. That's exciting to hear. Well, he was also, it's little known, I think he made those sketches with Andrew Collins at university. Right. When he was still called Matthew Hall. Oh, oh that's interesting. Yeah, I get excited when somebody, it turns out somebody started off on weekending because I started off on the reboot version of weekending. Did, and started we, like, I think 99% of the guests on here had some involvement with weekending yeah yeah I, I started off on news jack which is now dms are open but yeah i always get very excited so, oh that's like the analog version of what i started on <laughs> And talking about how massive he still is now, there's been an interesting progression, I think, where a lot of the material around that time, it slotted into, well, I mean, like the goodies repeats on UK Gold. There's a weird sort of, in tandem with the very first stirrings of Britpop, there's a kind of sort of a, not quite a 70s revival, but like the 70s just came back in a weird way. Mm. It was very much in tandem with that references to Space Hoppers and so on. But I would see his tour last year, and he did a really interesting thing where in the first half, he made a couple of jokes that were a bit kind of wasn't it better in the old days that mm. I was a bit suspicious because I thought that's leaning a little bit towards Brexity and I'm mm. not sure that's him and in the second half he's obviously made the mental notes the people who guffawed at you know the, they won't let yeah. you say anything anymore these days jokes it's not to say weren't the 70s wonderful you sir you remember when you could turn on the television and see a paedophile introducing <laughs> a singing paedophile if you didn't <laughs> like it you turned over and watched an Australian paedophile you sir you remember when terror 
to escape recognised code words. And you thought, what fine gentleman. <laughs> and I loved it. He was actually having a go at yeah. the audience he picked up that he maybe didn't really want in a situation where it would have taken them quite some time to get from their seats to the stage. But even so, it could have turned ugly. And I really mm. thought, well done to him. He's recognised that that aspect of his humour hasn't evolved brilliantly with time. Not his fault, but the 70s references are now to be treated in a very different way. And well done to him, frankly. Yeah, it was part of that. In the late 90s, there was this massive sort of nostalgia for the 70s. You know, we get, this isn't new. At the moment, we've got this weird nostalgia for Y2K, which, like, my kids are picking up. Like, I'm all like, I can take, I like Britney Spears, but generally I can take or leave Y2K stuff. My daughter started wearing kick flared jeans, even though I have, I've explained to her that she will get wet calves. <laughs> But I don't know, it's just one of those things. I think there's usually like a sort of a, it's quite normal for there to be a bit of nostalgia for almost exactly 20 years ago for, <laughs> for some reason. And it was just, it was just part of it. And maybe it was part of the surrealist revival because obviously surrealism was big in the 70s. There was just a surrealism revival and it was a family surrealism revival as well. You know, you have Vic and Bob who was sort of trying to be kind of more common wise, but also kind of with like massively, massively surrealist with Harry Hill and... Paul Merton just that sort of family surrealism they're weird as fuck but they don't say fuck so kids can watch it and laugh at like the weird cartoonish nonsense going on okay well I don't have much of a real sort of great way of getting from Harry Hill's Fruit Fantasies to your next choice which is somewhere that I've never heard of but having read about it I very much feel like I've been turn a day out into a great adventure From the wild frontier to the final frontier, the American Adventure theme park between Derby and Nottingham, just off the M1. Okay, that was David Jason there, encouraging you to attend the American Adventure. I'm glad I didn't take you up on the offer. Gabby, are you haunted by this haunted place? No, I'm not. It was wonderful. It was magical <laughs> land. So I grew up in Ilkeston, which is where the American Adventure used to be. And I think it was built on what used to be the pits because Ilkeston is the next mining town. Thank you very much, Margaret Thatcher. So when Thatcher closed the mines and put all the men out of work and created horror socio-economic rifts that I was still definitely feeling in the 90s. At that site, they built a theme park called the American Adventure. It was one of these, you know, it was it was not Alton Towers. <laughs> like I, right, I fucking love theme parks. Let's get this out of the way. I love theme parks so much. It is one of the things that absolutely everyone in my family loves. My family being, you know, the, me, my husband, my two kids who are now teenagers, and they're all tall enough to go in the bigger so like our idea of a perfect holiday which we do do quite often is to go to Watton Towers for two days or we'll go to Thorpe Park for a day like we love that shit really really love it when I was growing up my parents did not like rides at all so my first memory of the American Adventure is us going on like an open day when they didn't charge us they didn't charge anyone which my parents decided to go on that day rather than buy tickets and then they were horribly surprised that everybody else in the East Midlands had gone on the free day and they spent the entire day I don't think we lasted the whole day I think we lasted about two hours and they spent that entire time just whining that there were people there and that they would have to queue for rides 
I think after a couple of hours of both of my parents just complaining constantly, we gave up and went home. But it was close enough to just go with friends. You could just get a bus. Like seriously, I lived 10 minutes down the road from it. So you could just like go up with friends and we'd just spend the whole day there and we would get horribly sick because <laughs> you'd just like fill up on marshmallows and then you'd go on a ride called Missile, which was like the main roller coaster. There weren't many roller coasters. There was like a runaway mine train and there was the Missile and that's pretty much all I can remember. <laughs> well, that disturbed me slightly because all the rides were named after things like, you know, aspects of American yes. history because there was Cherokee Falls, which is Log Flume, the yes. Runaway oh, Mine, yeah, okay. the Buffalo Stampede Roller Coaster and the Missile. The missile. What is that commemorating the Cold War? Yeah, kind of the Space Age. It was they called it the Space Age at the time because the Cold War was still on. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was commemorating the Space Age. That was like the newest bit of the park. So you sort of went from frontier times. It went pretty much. Oh no, there was like a little like sort of New Mexico place, like a little Alamo place that had like a magic carpet ride. But I don't think they call it a magic carpet ride because that's Asian. Yeah, there's a frontier place, but a sort of a New Mexico kind of a place, and then there was the Space Age place. And that was the missile. And the missile was actually really good. It was, imagine stealth, but nowhere near as good. But it does go backwards a little bit. So sort of stealth mixed with 13, but it's based on the space age. And you just go up a little bit and down a little bit like stealth would. And I think there was a couple of loop-the-loops. But the whole point of it was you did it once forwards and then you did it again backwards. That was really cool. You'd run straight if you were going, if locals like me, you'd go and you'd just run straight to the space age end where the missile was at once you got in while there were no queues. And you'd just go on that four times in a row before anybody else had shown up. And then you would feel thoroughly sick for the rest of the day and then you just like dick about eating sweets and maybe going on the runaway mine train or the log flume which I do remember now uh, yeah that was it so it was a famously horrible employer obviously when you've got a theme park nearby it is, it is a big employer but these were the major years so we did not have minimum wage back then and I knew some teenagers who worked there and I'm pretty sure they were getting paid £1.50 an hour to do really dangerous work so under 80s these were minors who were yeah getting paid actual pennies to do some like really dangerous shit so yeah it was sort of bringing yeah bringing back the mines you know you got literal miners <laughs> <laughs> just built in a different way and they're not getting paid properly and they're doing really dangerous things so I also remember that my sister had the day off because they opened a new ride after I'd gone it was after I got to uni was it after I got to uni no it wasn't because my sister was still at school when did it close down well there's a whole convoluted history to it eventually fully closed in 2007 it was relaunched right, in 2005 right as a family experience apparently right. the sentence that one of the many sentences I found about it that are making me shudder just reading uh, <laughs> so it must have been when I was at uni because my mum told me over the phone but my sister had like had a day off to be in an advert because they had a new ride that they'd opened and they got Wolf from Gladiators yes they did the Gladiators the ride. ride it says here in 1995 yes. wasn't Gladiators oh. mania like long since over by then it might have still been on but it was wasn't what it was. No, it wasn't what it was, which is why they'd managed to get Wolf from Gladiators <laughs> to come to Ilkeston for the day. The Ilkeston, bless it, did not have much going for it. And the American Adventure was definitely the one thing it had going for it. So it must have been when I was at, at college then, if it was 90. No, I was still at school. What am I talking about? 95, I was still at school and my sister had taken the day off school to go and be in the advert and meet Wolf from Gladiators, who apparently was lovely. 
a real gentleman. So that's nice to know. So those are my memories of it. And also learning to drive in their car park (laughs) on a Sunday night. Uh, (laughs) Because it was like one big space. And on a Sunday night, obviously, it shut and there was nobody there. So my mum, no, my dad used to take the Fiat Panda up there. And then I'd learn to very slowly learn to drive in the car park in 1997. Yeah, Miss I, my sister missing school, I'm meeting Wolf and learning to drive in their car park. And then it just died. And it wasn't one of the ones that was big enough to get bought out by Merlin. RIP the American Adventure. You were not as good as Alton <laughs> Towers by a long way. We'd, like Alton Towers would still be the place that we'd go for a big treat. I think we did go to the American Adventure as a school trip once, but it wasn't like a proper one. A proper school trip would be Alton Towers. That would be what we'd get excited about. American Adventure you wouldn't get that. It's just like slight down the road thing actually also in Ilkeston we still have the goose fair which is like a really big thing and anybody like I'm really sort of giving a lot of goods I feel like people who are like listening from this area of southeast Derbyshire will be I feel like people from that area of southeast Derbyshire will be feeling seen a little bit in this uh, <laughs> in this part of the podcast because we also have the goose fair which is still going on and is another of the few things that Ilkeston has going for it which is the end of October every year the Nottingham Goose Fair comes to Ilkeston for a week and it just takes over the whole town. I think it's the biggest street fair in Europe. Ilkeston's got two high streets and a market square. So it takes over both high streets, the market square, and also this big car park behind the cinema for a week. Obviously, people in Ilkeston really fucking love rides, apart from my parents. like the whole of my childhood and sort of teenage years is sort of tied up around like going on the waltzes a lot because <laughs> that's just its whole thing come to Wilkeston we have rides sometimes well I did a lot of well ironically digging into the history of the American adventure mm. and this is the reason I find the whole thing so haunting and disturbing mm-hmm. it's, like, it's like somebody built a hauntology theme park yeah. but there's so many weird things about it the first thing is as you say it was built on an abandoned deep sea coal mining site which immediately mm-hmm. it's sort of halfway between Scooby-Doo <laughs> and the sort of public information film level of <laughs> risk, you know you might go through the ground while they're unmasking whoever mm. it was that was using it as a plot to smuggle some gold on the paddle steamer and apparently <laughs> the entrance did eventually sink like actually just sank one day but before it was the American Adventure in 1985 it was open for 10 weeks as Britannia Park which to me just sounds like Lee Anderson going round on one of those things from the railway where they has the two people pushing the handles up and down. <laughs> that closed after 10 weeks when the owner was charged with fraud then it was bought by Granada, as in Granada, yeah. who were behind the American adventure. So I'd like to think oh, that somewhere there's an episode of Granada Reports with Bob Greaves trying <laughs> out the Buffalo Stampede. It seemed to be living the American dream, but through theme park rides. Because I think year mm. went that seemed to have gone further and further forward into American history. And you know, there wasn't quite a test your strength by hitting Nixon thing. <laughs> but, <laughs> but you wonder if, you know, had it stayed open. Would there be some Donald themed ride? Oh, maybe. Yeah, the yeah. Trumper cars. Oh god, yeah. <laughs> Maybe, maybe they could have been like one of those 3D rides called like the Obama-Rama or something like that. Yeah, it was weird. I think we still kind of feel like history kind of stops at the space race. Maybe that's just because it's like when I do history-based comedy, we tend to stop around the Cold War. We tend to like not go any further than the 60s. Like what's Neil Armstrong's on the moon is pretty much right stop now. So it kind of feels like, yeah, it sort of goes up to the point where we've decided history stops, which is the space race. And then you're 
of yeah it just sort of stops yeah I didn't realize it was that haunted I mean I knew it was kind of haunted it had kind of haunted vibes especially when it was going to seed a little bit but I didn't realize it was that what's there now do you know I haven't been to Oxton for a very long time apparently it's been redeveloped as housing offices and leisure facilities oh but of course there is a very housing. active Facebook group demanding its reopening because that's how it works yeah, you build those. We want the theme park open, and it just okay. Yeah. We'll knock down all the new builds that probably brought in millions and millions of pounds. <laughs> I don't dare look, but I bet it's full of people saying we sank through the ground on the log through thousands yeah. of times. Never did us any harm. <laughs> You'd have to be brand it as like the Brexit adventure or something like that. <laughs> well, back so to Britannia it. Park again. Back to Britannia <laughs> Park, yeah. It can just be a, a celebration of all the wonderful things that they've done to us. <laughs> okay, moving on to your next choice now, which not only has nobody ever devoted the theme park to, I doubt the coverage of American history and the American adventure ever went quite as far as this. A video game by Rockstar, who do Grand Theft Auto and Red Dead Redemption, which they did between Grand Theft Auto and Red Dead Redemption, and it did not work. I chose this one because it's really weird, because like Rockstar are like such huge game development, and they are so good at creating these games where you ride around a bit, and then you do some action, and then you ride around a bit, and you have a puzzle, and then you ride around a bit, and you have a shootout. They are so good at that. And they really missed on this one. And it is so strange that between these two incredibly successful franchises, like Red Dead Redemption 2 is one of my favourite games of all time. I'm replaying it at the moment and I'm sort of trying to replay it very, very slowly because Rockstar, I mean, I don't think it's much of a spoiler to say that Rockstar always kills their protagonist about three quarters of the way through the narrative. And I love the main protagonist of Red Dead Redemption 2 so much. I'm playing it very, very slowly so that I can eke as much life out of him as I possibly can. In this one, they killed the main protagonist like a third of the way through the game. And part of the reason that I don't feel like the game works is that like the, the pacing of the narrative is really off. The driving's really off because unlike Grand Theft Auto and Red Dead Redemption, you have to follow the highway code in this game. <laughs> You're not allowed to just like bash your car into people. Like, in Grand Theft Auto, you just like bash your car into people. In Red Dead Redemption, you've got a horse, so you can just ride that horse <laughs> anywhere as long as it's not off a cliff. In LNY, you have to sort of like follow the rules of the road and it's really boring because you're just driving around LA, which takes ages. So you sort of, it's mostly going to crime scenes, finding clues, and then questioning suspects. But the way that they did it was really weird. So you've got to sort of base whether you think the suspect is telling the truth or not of how they act, about how much they make eye contact with you and how fidgety they are. And sometimes that's really off, and sometimes it doesn't work. Another weird thing that they did is that they sort of like just filmed 
actors so their faces are like in really high definition and a lot of them are really famous as well so they've just like gone through the cast of Mad Men for almost all of their cast like the main character is one of the guys from Mad Men there's quite a lot of Mad Men cast in it there's some other like fairly big name actors in it just like playing suspects so they get these sort of very well-known faces and then they just sort of plonk them on top of these quite basic blocky bodies and again it really doesn't work so you've got this like really human face on top of this sort of like hulking sort of playstation one type body and it's it's really weird the crime solving aspect doesn't work because it's really frustrating because it's just off the way that the suspects sort of look at you it's really hard to gauge whether they might be telling the truth or not and the driving's really boring and they just mess up just the pacing of the story you end up on this one really big big long murder catching a serial killer and then it just stops and it turns into something else something about game fixing and bet fixing in boxing and then that just suddenly stops again and then it becomes all about this sort of arson case and it's it's really confusing and there's no real through story like there is in the other games and it's just it's just really i enjoyed playing it even though it was kind of off. I'm just fascinated by just how strange it is. Yeah, I am going to liken it. The difference between this and Red Dead Redemption and Grand Theft Auto 2. On the ZX Spectrum, I would say, you know, on the one hand, these are just two random examples of all that thin air. Turbo Esprit, I can't even remember what the actual gameplay was because it involved herring around city streets in a sports car with funky music playing. Mm. You know, it didn't get more exciting than that. On the other hand, you would think as a kid, the idea of flying a plane would be more exciting <laughs> than driving car high speed flight simulator on the spectrum was kind of oh what i've got to keep an eye on that dial and then that dial this isn't really working for me yeah. and it's i'd say it's like a hyper advanced version of that contrast really yeah yeah it is there's very little thrill to it so it's quite a chill game obviously because it's quite boring and you get like sort of weird a soundtrack's lovely i will give it that the soundtrack is lovely so it's quite nice sort of driving around listening to a sort of noirish music but just compared to how lovely it is to just like on, on, on red dead redemption 2 i will have whole evenings where I don't really play the game, where I will just put Arthur on his horse and we'll just go for a ride. We'll just go off. We'll go to a town that has a saloon. We'll play poker with some strangers. I'll take him off and we'll go fishing for a bit. And then that'll just be what me and Arthur do for an evening. You can't do that in LA Noir. You can't have that level of being chill. You're just sort of driving around LA listening to oldie timey music. That's a very interesting detail. There was also, as well as the soundtrack, there was apparently a tie-in short story collection, which is something, because this is 2011, that they kept trying to do around mm. them. I mean, the most obvious example is, do you know about the Lost tie-in novel? No. In the first season of Lost, when Hurley and Sawyer are going through the other passengers' belongings. Yes. And they find a manuscript for a book. Mm. That was actually published, Bad Twim, by Gary Troop, who obviously, you know, oh. was a pen name. But supposedly yes. there were clues in it towards, you know, what was going on in Lost. So I imagine they bore no relation to what actually happened in the yes, finale. Yes, because they were just but making they it up. they kept trying to do that. There were tie-in books by Castle from Castle and it never took off. It just never mm. became a thing. But the soundtrack album, because obviously, as you suggested, there is this in-game radio station with sort of like Ella Fitzgerald and Billie Holiday on or yeah. someone. And it's made me think of, because that was really well received, but a recurring frustration of mine. You know, every so often there'll be something that collects 30s and 40s music, and 20s as well, I suppose. Mm. And people 
will say just about that. Isn't all this stuff brilliant? I think it starts with the Singing Detective album in the mm-hmm. mid-80s. And, you know, it goes further forward with things like that DJ Yoda album, How to Cut and Paste 30s edition, where if anyone's not heard that, please go and listen to that because he's made a dance album about a Cab Calloway and people like that. Oh, lovely. Absolutely fantastic. There's the use in, you know, Captain America, the first Avenger and Agent Carter mm. of period records with people like, these are great songs and they never follow them further. It's at the moment there's Let's Do It by Bob Stanley from St. Etienne, which is, a, you know, a history of this whole half century of poppy music we've got before mm. rock and roll. And people are saying, isn't the stuff he writes about great? And then not exploring any more of it. I just wish there would be some kind of revival of this stuff, you know, on the back of one of these things. But yeah. it just never seems to happen and I can't understand why. Maybe people don't like the fashions or something. People don't really want to be wearing zoot suits in this day and age. <laughs> they Maybe, blow yeah. away with the wind we've got going on at the moment. <laughs> Yeah, maybe I do like a bit of Cab Calloway. Again, it sounds very haunted. I think one of the main problems with L.A. Noir, though, is that the central character... I mean, I'm not saying there were legions of children wanting to be Rockford from Boulder Town. But, <laughs> but you know what I mean? There's nothing about him that would make you immerse in him as a character, thinking, wouldn't no. it be great to live this lifestyle? Yeah, he's very, very straight-laced, but then he's not even... You know, he cheats on his wife, and he is unlikable, which is, again, really weird, because then they did... Red Dead Redemption after that and they created two incredibly likeable characters who don't cheat on well John like does not cheat on his wife at all and Arthur is single and still doesn't really he's more interested in like befriending like a series of different widows he's got so many widows who are suggest that they have some sort of romantic interest in him and he's just like ma'am just here to help out ma'am it's strange that in these two sort of wild west outlaws that they created for Red Dead Redemption Red Dead Redemption 2 they made men who were much more likeable without being they weren't straight late you know these are outlaws but they're also like not arseholes to it. so they, yeah they managed to make like these two outlaws like really really likeable and you really bond with them so much I mean so much god I cry so much when spoiler Arthur dies Arthur died TB I got the TB I cry so hard when he dies because Rockstar never finished the game when their protagonist died He's, he always dies somewhere in the third act and then you have to carry on with a new guy and I was just sobbing as I was you start off with like quite low stakes with the new guy in the sort of the second half of the third act so I was like my new guy was like trying to build a fence and I was still just weeping over my control <laughs> like full on sobbing going, you're not my real dad John Marston <laughs> but there was none of that when oh god I can't even remember the name of the main guy who dies but I want to say Eddie Valiant but that's the guy from Who Framed Roger Rabbit when the main guy in LA Noir dies I was just like oh oh is he dead that's weird because I feel like we're only about a third of the way through the game and then I just spent the rest of the game going oh okay so yeah there there wasn't any emotional hit at all because I didn't particularly like him and I didn't particularly like the guy that replaced him either it was just a miss it was just a swing and a miss in this case I think a lot of it came down to the gameplay and the narrative like you can work as much as you can on getting things like historically accurate but if you haven't got the narrative 
and the character and in a game the gameplay down then you're fucked it's like you know I write books and I've got to you know the main thing is you know I do what at the moment I'm writing some books based in a sort of an alternate Tudor London so I am you know trying to make sure that it's not historically accurate because it's an alternate you know there are dragons which there weren't in actual Tudor London but you know I'm trying to make sure that they're like I had to go back I got a Chinese character but China wasn't a word in those days people from China called it Great Ming and Westerners often called it Cathay so I had to like go back and take out any mention of anyone saying back in China oh he's Chinese no they wouldn't have said that because China and Chinese weren't words so you've got to do that but there'd be no point in me doing that if I wasn't sure that I had likable characters and that I had a a proper storyline with like that's paced well if you don't have that backbone then there's no point in gilding the lily with like lots of historically accurate little I mean there's lots and lots of really historically accurate little bits there's a big chase and a big fight on the sets of Intolerance the D.W. Griffith movie that's sort of been shelved and it's just sort of like out in the middle of nowhere this big film set and it is like really accurate to the film set from the movie Intolerance but it comes at a really weird point and with a character you don't really care about so so what? <laughs> okay well moving on to the next choice now which is something that I don't think any thought went into at any point whatsoever and which I wonder if your adulation <laughs> might even register with this Love had one of those days try Weller's latest advance experience with liquid hair it contains the most important ingredients found naturally in hair to rebuild and strengthen giving you perfect body and shine experience the new hair care range Weller perfectly you okay because I couldn't find the advert for the actual product in question that's the Weller perfectly you advert from the mid 90s so coming <laughs> Weller shaders and toners I didn't know much about these before I started reading up about them but I'm guessing you had some skirmishes with them yes when I do this podcast I like to throw in a 90s beauty product because whenever you have other women of around my age on it's always the 90s beauty product I go oh yes at that bit so Weller toners and shaders were like a little packet like a little single use sachet of hair dye and it was wash in wash out hair dye so it was basically if you were going out for the night you'd wash in like this colour and then the next time you wash it almost all of it would come out it was like not even semi-permanent it was like really really temporary hair dye and they mostly seemed to weirdly they mostly seemed to sell it in like really natural neutral colours like what would be the point it feels like there's absolutely no point if you're going out for the night dyeing your hair sort of dusky ash blonde especially since if you're a brunette like me then that would not work (laughs) the ones that were really popular were one that was a sort of a plum purple and one that I liked that was sort of bright I don't know whether it's called like chili pepper or chili pepper red I know for a fact that the shade gets mentioned on the bureau yes in the day to day yeah Rebecca Fronts I can't remember the actual shade but it's the shade that Rebecca Fronts says her hair is chili hot pepper right it's that one it is that specific one that was my favourite and I still kind of dye my hair I do dye my hair these days because I'm 43 I do kind of dye my hair that kind of colour still it's a sort of a dark it's a dark bright red it's kind of 
Penaret and it, it looked beautiful. And yeah, I, I used to love that one. But yeah, sometimes people would have like the plum. So it was really good if you were a brunette because the dark chili pepper red would make your hair sort of go a sort of a henna red, sort of brownish, shiny, dark red. And the plum one was really good, again, if you were a dark brunette because it just added a sort of a purple, a purple shine to your hair, really, because it didn't make your hair go bright purple, but it added this sort of real, yeah, sort of purple highlights to dark hair which back in those days when we didn't have that much right hair unless you wanted to go like full punk and have to like bleach it and like put the block color in those were your options if you were like a teenager who didn't want to like do something and and obviously if you came to school with mad hair then you'd get in trouble so that was like a really nice option for like teenagers if you were going like out or to a party or something I think I remember that's what I put in my hair when I went to see REM in 1995 at Milton Keynes Bowl which I mentioned in the previous podcast the one gig that almost all of my peers ended up at (laughs) and I dyed my hair the chili pepper red and it was such a hot day I sweated and I was wearing a beige REM t-shirt and I just had these orange streaks because I'd sweated so much it just like the weller shaders and toners wash in wash out my sweat was washing it out basically and there were streaks of orange going down my shoulders and down my back it was very exciting so I think that was my main wrangle with it sweating really hard at REM so that it all washed out naturally through like head sweat (laughs) I was going to say I mean the packaging which I've got plenty more to say about the packaging but it promises Mm. six washes washing wash out colour from what you're saying it sounds like it was maybe 1.2 washes but had you dyed your hair purple you know had you got the purplish tint in it Mm. if you'd gone out that's quite often would happen you know when you had to make your own way around wait for taxis and so on yeah and it's suddenly poured down with rain uh-huh would you just end up looking like an even lower budget version of phyllis from coronation street yes absolutely <laughs> oh it's that it would be all down your top and all down your shirt i do still dye my hair and i do still get that issue because i've got really thick hair people who are similarly afflicted as me you get to a point when you're washing out the hair dye when you're just bored <laughs> when you have been rinsing and rinsing and rinsing so much and then you'll move you'll think you've got it all out and then you'll move the wand a little bit and then it will just start the water will go orange again it's like, for fuck's sake i've been doing this for half an hour and after a while you just get bored and you're supposed to keep going until the water runs clear and i tend to go until the water runs very slightly orange and then i go that'll do and then that means that for the next few hair washes you don't wear a white top or a white bra because you will get like there's bits that you've missed and you will get like little drips of orange going down your top still so I'm still kind of afflicted by that when I dye my hair but these days I use like a permanent one that isn't just all going to come out immediately I'm guessing it would have looked something along the lines of very weak Lucas aid. yes yes certainly when I dye my hair now and I've got boards while rinsing and then I go back and I wash my hair again the next time it comes out the colour of a very dehydrated wee. It's been a hot day and you wee for the first time in like seven hours. It's that colour. I'm quite fascinated by the packaging though, which mm. has inadvertently reminded me of something I've forgotten about. You can tell it's from the mid-90s because all of the models on the packet have got sort of a non-copyright equivalent of the Rachel. Yes. They've all got, you know the way you would see, I mean this is a real kind of warning of what was to come in the social media age. What was the paper-based version of clickbaity columns but you get a female columnist writing about how she was persecuted for having a Rachel and then there'll be a photo of her and you think that doesn't look like Jennifer Aston's hair at all but they're <laughs> kind of like that there's a warning on it it's not suitable for permed bleach highlighted or porous hair 
Now, mm. surely either hair is porous or it's not. So don't understand yeah. that. Or hair with a high percentage of grey, which I mm. imagine probably a lot of the women using it at the time. Kind of, ha-ha, suckers, you can't join in. And probably that became more of a, an offensive business strategy as well, time went on. They do actually say that about some hair dyes still. It all depends on how bright it is. It doesn't work as well on grey hair, so it does look very different, basically. And also with something that's like wash in, wash out, that's going to start looking really weird on like grey hair it is more it's a shader and a toner it is more for like adding a sort of a weird highlight to your natural colour hair and if your natural colour hair is silver then it's just going to look a bit weird it was a product for teenagers basically which is fair enough although a lot of us did have perms in those days I don't think people listen to the don't diet if it's perms (laughs) suggestion because a lot of us still had those crunchy perms going on again this is something that seems to have just disappeared almost completely to the extent that there were a couple of packets of sale on ebay I would suggest not buying them and using them. Very out of date. Yeah, you might be opening yourself to all kinds of unforeseen (laughs) complications there, but... The only other mention I could find was a Mumsnet discussion thread from someone saying, yeah. what were they called? So they have disappeared almost completely. I wonder if it's because I'm kind of like placing this from an outsider point of view. But it did seem to me at the time that Weller in the mid 90s would be seen as very much a kind of late 70s, early 80s brand. The very sort of Farrah Fawcett thing. In fact, did they even have yeah. a logo of somebody with Farrah Fawcett-ish hair? Possibly. They were sort of needs must, you know, there are no yeah. other cheap options available. Ergo, I must use this yeah possibly these days mind you these days it's like Schwarzkopf do loads of things and Schwarzkopf's another like should have like old lady connotations its logo is like a silhouette of like an Edwardian lady or something I think it all just all just depends I mean there's lo- there are loads of like bright temporary hair dye options these days for people who dye their hair at home for like younger people as well as sort of people like me who are middle aged and don't quite want to go blue rinse yet <laughs> so there are a lot of I think there's a lot more options these days for what you want to do with your hair and how you want to color it there are still some wash in wash out options for people who just want to go bright just for like a night out or something it's just it's not well as shaders and toners anymore okay well I'm wondering if some of the people who witnessed well they did witness your last choice might actually be in need of well as shaders and toners due to their hair turning gray and bright <laughs> obviously you'll find out why there's nothing I could use as a clip directly for this so here's some Something vaguely related. Oh, I'm not older. What was that? Wait, that's again. Now you're back. That was different. Came from under here. What? Here. Look! Blimey! Come on, hang on. What is it? What is it? Ziggy, don't! I can't see nothing. Ziggy, I'm telling you, don't! It's all right. Hello? Ziggy! Is anybody there? Hello? Okay, that's Trevor Cleaver from Grange Hill being spooked by the school ghost, even though it's just Goncholo and Robbie hiding behind the wall and shining <laughs> a green torch. So, Gabby, who was Catherine? 
<laughs> so we've already talked about very, very East Midlands specific representation. I'm going more specific with this. I'm going specifically to people who went to my junior school in Ilkeston. I won't name the school because I've got a funny feeling that it's one of my security questions on something. It's the sort of thing that you would have as a security question. But basically, if you went to school in Ilkeston in the 80s and the name Catherine rings a bell and specifically the chant Catherine, Catherine, one, two, three rings a bell, then you'll know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about Catherine, the school ghost. I chose this even though it is so specific, so specific, not just to my school, but to my school in the 80s, because I'm not sure how long the Catherine lasted for. But so many people who I know had quote unquote a school ghost when they went to school and the ghost was always in the toilets. So our school ghost, Catherine, was in the upper girls toilets and basically you had to look in the mirror and you had to chant Catherine, Catherine, one, two, three. The rumour was that she might appear behind you in the mirror, that she had glowing eyes. Lots of people had definitely seen her. Sometimes she had blood pouring from her eyes. One time we were in the toilets and we chanted Catherine, Catherine, one, two, three, and the outside door rattled and we all screamed and ran out and this was definite proof that Catherine existed. There was also, you could absolutely hear girls in that bit of the toilets if you were a child outside the other side of that door, which led like onto the playground, onto a bit of the playground where lots of children were allowed to be. And we happened to chant that at playtime and you could absolutely hear people talking from the other side of the door and the door was very rattleable from the other side of the door. But no, it couldn't possibly have been (laughs) other girls or even some boys listening from the other side and then rattling after we chanted Catherine, Catherine, one, two, three. It had to have been the ghost. So yeah, Catherine became sort of part of the school law. And if you were chatting to somebody who'd gone to the same junior school as me later when we were teenagers, if you ended up talking to somebody who'd gone to the same junior school as you, you would end up talking about Catherine the ghost. Yeah, she just became part of this hyper-specific local law. And when I talk to other people of around the same age, there is often a school ghost. And, you know, there was what was suggested to be a school ghost storyline in Grange Hill. Harry Potter's got a school ghost in it. I think it's just one of those things that lots of schools... Right, I'm fascinated by the history of ghosts. I don't believe in ghosts, but I'm fascinated by them as law and the ghost stories that we tell each other and why we tell each other ghost stories. Something that I was listening to a while ago sort of dated that the idea of a poltergeist was invented at the same time as the teenager. Poltergeists were invented at the same time as teenagers and poltergeists are always around teenage girls. There's always a teenage girl at the centre of every poltergeist story and it's more to do with sort of, yeah, teenage girls doing our weird ass teenage things. Like teenage girls are so fucking weird. We are so fucking weird when we're teenagers and it's teenage girls doing teenage things and then the adult society around them exploiting that. It's also that sort of poltergeist came up around the same sort of time as sort of mass media. Teenagers, poltergeist, mass media all invented around the same time and they all feed each other. So all these sort of stories like the Battersea poltergeist and stuff like that, you can very easily see that as a teenage girl either like crying out for attention or having a psychotic break <laughs> often around these sort of podcasts. I used to listen to Uncanny until I started getting a 
very, very unpleasant feeling about it that Uncanny exploits mental illness for entertainment. And ever since I started thinking that, I couldn't get it out of my head. And it was the Witch Farm one that really sort of cemented it to me that this syndicate of podcasts is exploiting serious mental health issues for a cheap giddy thrill. And I honestly think that a lot of real life ghost stories like the Battle of the Sea podcast story are just an exploitation of somebody having a psychotic break. And the whole sort of media circus that sort of swarmed up around this girl was all part of this sort of exploitation of it and that we keep doing it. So yeah, basically I'm glad that I'm glad that Danny Robbins wasn't doing podcasts at the time of Catherine because he may well have turned up with his like utterly credulous <laughs> just taking everything that we say as if it's completely true and just having no critical thinking and inviting on two experts neither of which show any critical thinking at all and just taking everything that we say completely as read which is what it would have done and that's the reason why I don't listen to Uncanny anymore <laughs> I listen to pretend ghost stories which are written by people and which say on the tin that they're fictional because I feel that that is more ethical well Catherine would have come just after the sort of demise of paranormal research as mainstream entertainment which it really yeah. was in the 70s so you probably just missed out on having your school featured on some ITV documentary with sort of voodoo artefacts in the opening titles and sort of whistly flute music by a couple of years but it was a recurring thing in schools except we didn't have a ghost in my primary school we had to be different yeah. <laughs> this is a long story. Basically, my primary school was, it may only have been a couple of years old, the building, by the time I started there. Prior to that, because it was a church-affiliated one, the school had been the church hall, which then became sort of like a social club. Mm. But... The odd thing was, face of the church hall that faced out onto the street, you know, was in common use, people going in and out and so on. The back part, which had been obviously the playground in the school, which backed onto the new primary school, was like sort of abandoned and overgrown and wild. Mm. And the myth grew up that the beast lived there. <laughs> now, being cynical even at that age, I used to think, but wouldn't the people who go in to play the fruit machines, wouldn't they mm. see the beast and, you know, <laughs> curtail its activities in some way? But yeah. kids were genuinely frightened of this. Admittedly, Aww. from the back, it looked a little bit like the house in the opening titles of the Hammer House of Horror, which, you know, right. was on around then. So that may have fueled it. And it slightly mm. overgrown and untended. But there were kids who would stay completely at the other end of the playground for the whole of the lunch oh, hour oh. to avoid the <laughs> beast and you know beast. some intrepid boys if ever a football went into there mm. would you know risk their lives by going to retrieve it but i remember thinking there's a bit more to this beast story than meets the eye <laughs> what convinced me was the one thing protecting us from it was a sort of waist level wooden gate yeah and one day that sort of blew over in a high wind and there were children like cheering shouting the beast's dead and i was thinking how is it only that big how is it gonna get anyone <laughs> And it was never quite established what form the beast took either. Mm. It may have taken on many forms, actually, in keeping with horror lore, but I don't know, was it a sort of demonic figure or like a, I was visualised kind of like a robotic Frankenstein? Yeah, it's just kids being weird, isn't it? We don't really talk about how fucking weird kids are when they sort of invent this lore and it will almost always be a monster. But it's not even filling in any gaps in logic. It's not no. explaining something they don't understand. It's just they just create it from no 
nowhere for no they reason. just create these wonderful horror stories out of nowhere so Catherine had this whole backstory so the our school was like it wasn't like a new new build but I think it was like probably a 60s build her backstory was about like before the school had been built that she'd lived there or there'd been a school there before and basically she told herself that was the culmination of Catherine's so backstory. hang on she hung herself in a building that didn't exist at that point she yes and then the, her uh... girls, the girls toilets was built over the site where she'd hung herself so it's wonderful it's this <laughs> I mean I say it's wonderful about a story about a bunch of children making up a story about another child dying by suicide but it is that darkness that we don't talk about that children because this was like junior school so we were 9 10 11 it is this darkness and these dark dark stories that children will tell each other again out of nothing there was no reason there was nothing to explain about the toilet we just wanted there to be something sad and scary about that toilet and yeah it's just like it's the stories that kids will tell themselves and a lot I think a lot of the adult incredulousness about sort of poltergeist when like a 12 13 year old girl will say that she's being visited by the devil and that he's throwing her up in the air is that I think adults kind of believe that no 12 year old girl could possibly invent that story of course she fucking could children are dark and they have these dark imaginations and come up with horror stories to entertain themselves of course a teenager would make up that story that's exactly the sort of thing a teenager would imagine and yeah yeah we we just sort of imagined this story of this tragic girl we're not quite sure what she'd do to us if she got us there was a lot of different sort of stories about what she'd do obviously she'd never got anyone or at least not in our generation I think there may have been some stories about her getting someone in the past like coming through the mirror but yeah it was just one of those dark ass stories that just sprung out of nowhere and I feel like that sort of darkness and horror we should be more accepting of that that children do invent these weird stories (laughs) and that's how kids minds work you're absolutely right about how dark they got because i was just thinking about some examples of other bizarre stories i associate with that playground i was thinking about how to anyone who went to my school it would be funny to mention them but i was thinking how dark they sound without context Mm. just for example there was a rumor that a boy in the year above me had fallen down the drain in the playground i won't say drain (laughs) in the playground you know you know what I mean? Those yeah. little circular ones, which, you know, yeah. he would just, Jacob Rees-Mogg would struggle to fall down one of them. I wish he would, but, you know. Yeah, yeah. And that he'd been replaced by a robot of himself. Oh, wow. That's weird enough. There was, I won't name her, but a friend of mine I'm still friends with tormented some other girls by pretending to be a medium. And amongst yeah. the people she claimed to receive messages from, this is where the story starts to fall apart because, you know, yeah. one of these people very much at the time a medium would not be getting messages from, but mm. they included the Yorkshire Ripper <laughs> yeah. and Bobby Sands, the IRA hunger striker. Oh, my God. But these girls were genuinely fell for it and were frightened. Yeah. And, you know, that sounds horrible, you know, saying that yeah. now, but to anyone who was involved in that, including the girls who were scared by it, it's a hilarious story. And I remember a boy who, he was quite an odd chap, 
anyway. And he had, mm. shall we say, a mop of blonde hair. Right. At the time, we said he looked like a certain celebrity. Right, yeah. Now you would say he looked like a certain former prime minister. Yeah. He, amongst the many odd things he did, he once claimed to be possessed by, now not even a high-ranking Second World War German officer, but just, you know, an ordinary yeah, stormtrooper of suppose. an ordinary Nazi. And he was standing in the bush in the playground with like a big branch, poking at people and shrieking like an eagle, while wow. other people obviously fancying themselves Second World War aces tried to subdue him. Wow. And you know, that mentioning that now, everything about that sounds horrific, but yeah. I can assure you there was no lasting long-term damage done by any of it. It was just kids with a dark imagination, which is what happens. I'm aware that some people might actually be, you know, feeling a bit spooked by some of those stories, but it's the context to yeah. you, to you in your small child world. They are exhilarating at the time and they're funny later. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like we shouldn't be spooked by kids saying weird, dark things. Because our adult brain tends to go, oh, that means there must be some sort of outside influence infecting the pure innocent. You've No, let's just accept that kids are weird and dark and they're just that's just how their brains are and because that's how our brains are our brains are weird and dark and they go down weird places and they're just small adults yeah they're just people <laughs> they're just people who are developing and that doesn't necessarily mean that their brains are full of sunshine and lollipops and rainbows yeah let's just accept that just accept your kids are weirdo <laughs> well i've got a couple of questions about Catherine though which is firstly mm. was ever established what she looked like no she had glow she was a girl and she had glowing eyes glowing red eyes sometimes they were glowing green eyes I think but no it was ne- never fully light. yes <laughs> if she had one glowing red eye and one glowing amber eye you had to prepare to stop uh, do you think she could have won the beast <laughs> I don't know because we don't know what the beast was it was defeated by a gate and they, not even a yeah, gate, gate so. probably yes then I think I'm tougher than a gate do you think the Catherine myth could have come from? Do you think she went to the American Adventure and sank on one of the rides? <laughs> Maybe. Although, you know, obviously the, the myth is that she died by her own hand on the site of the school. But maybe it was the American Adventure that drove her to it. <laughs> Actually, I'm going to get Catherine on this to talk about before they built the school. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know where to go from there. Gabby, you've been brilliant. Thank you. Top of the Box Volume 2 by Tim Worthington. The story behind every album released by BBC Records and Tapes, from Play School Play On to Russell Grant's Zodiac Jukebox. Comedy, sound effects, show tunes, folk, singing soap stars, the BBC Radiophonic Workshop, and more albums of birdsong that you ever knew was possible to exist. More details at timworthington.org.